Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, Pastor Andy is going to teach us where Christmas originated from. Enjoy the message. This week, we are going to ask the question, what is true, what is not? Christmas, fact or fiction? Are you living in truth? That's the question this morning. Are you living in truth? And Mike, I, I, let's just start off this way. What were some of the traditions uh, that you grew up or you're currently uh, doing in your home for Christmas? Just think about that. What are some of the traditions that just bring that warm fuzzies, you know, those traditions that you would never miss? Uh, for us in the McGowan household, we've had a number of traditions that popped up either on accident or intentionally, uh, but they are literally solidified. This is what we do every year. Uh, we put up the Christmas tree the day after our youngest, Graham's birthday. Uh, we make it into a big night where we, where we uh, put up the ornaments. A couple weeks later, we go to the Bass Pro Shop. We go see Santa Claus. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, and then after that, they go look at the fish. And then we go to Partillo's. We got to go to Partillo's because it's wonderful. All right? Uh, one of the traditions that we have is that sometime hasn't happened yet. The kids don't know what's going to happen. But they go to bed. We wake them up at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And we walk Christmas Lane in their pajamas. Uh, that's one of our traditions. Another tradition we have, I've already mentioned it, the Christmas Eve service, right? Wouldn't miss that for the world. You wouldn't have a preacher, I guess, if I didn't show up, but we wouldn't miss that for the world, but it has been a tradition for us, and when we're done, we go home, we have little finger foods, and we get ready for the big morning on Christmas morning. What are some of your traditions? Maybe it's going to a family or friend's house. Maybe it's watching a particular Christmas movie. Maybe a Christmas story or It's a Wonderful Life or, or Elf. Uh, maybe it's the reading of the Christmas story the night before. What are some of your traditions? And Christmas traditions, they are fun. They're a lot of fun. But, you know, sometimes our traditions can become the meaning. And it's not the meaning. And so I, my question, I guess, further is, where did the traditions, not just your personal traditions, where did the big Christmas traditions come from? You know, the Christmas tree, the lights, the candle. Where did they all come from? Well, when you read the Bible, you'll notice a good majority of what we see in our Christmas celebrations is absent. So where did everything come from? A brief history of Christmas. If you are a historian, if you love history, oh, this is your morning. You're absolutely going to love it, all right? So have you ever wondered, well, this was, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? We all agree with that, right? Check. And the reason why Jesus came is he came to rescue you. Without a Savior, we are in a mess. We are in a hot mess. Uh, we have sinned, and sin separates us from Almighty God. And when we're separated from Almighty God, uh, no religion, no good works, nothing can get you to God. Uh, only God can get you to God, and that's why he came. That's why he came to rescue us from our sins. The, the miracle, God came to be with us, the Emmanuel, God with us, fully God, fully man, to rescue us from our sins, standing in our place. That is Christmas. So when did it happen? We got the who, we got the what. We got the when. When, it, when did it happen? Some of you are like, well, duh, Christmas is December 25th. Is that, is that in the Bible? Right? Like, when did Christmas happen? And if you look through the pages of Scripture, you'll notice there's not a specific date given. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, in fact, if you want to turn there, I invite you to turn there right now. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, we get a glimpse of when this moment of Jesus' birth happened. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. 
Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So we see here, they are, the angels are proclaiming the birth of Jesus. Jesus have been, has been born. We see this. It was past tense. He was born for you uh, today in the city of David. And so we get a glimpse. The shepherds were the first people to hear about the proclamation, to, to hear about the announcement of the birth of Savior, little baby King Jesus. But we still don't know how to date. We still don't know exactly when we see that shepherds are in a field. It was uncommon for shepherds to be in fields in the month of December. It doesn't mean they can't. It just wasn't common. And this led some theologians to believe that actually Jesus may have been born in September or maybe even late summer. But if you were to ask the early church as, as, far, as late as 200 AD, many thought the birth of Jesus was on January 6th, not December 25th. But by the mid-4th century, the church celebrated the birth of Jesus on December 25th. We don't know why exactly they picked December 25th, but that is the time that uh, we, uh, by the 4th century, was pretty universal. And today, in the Eastern Church, that is the churches in uh, Russia or Eastern Europe, many of them still celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus on January 6th that you might notice on your calendar. That's called Epiphany. Uh, that is the day that uh, the church celebrates the, the coming of the wise men uh, to Jesus. But in the Eastern Church today, they were, they were, they're going to celebrate Christmas January 6th. Where are we? We celebrate it on December 25th. Why December 25th? Well, there's an overriding theory uh, that the celebration of the birth of Jesus was moved to December 25th from January 6th or from September or whatever uh, in order to override the pagan holiday of winter solstice and the worship of the sun. Pagans would worship the birth of the sun uh, on, summer, on the winter solstice. It's a day where the days began to lengthen. And so it was a new birth of the sun. And so the pagans would worship the sun. In Rome, there was a holiday called the Roman Feast of uh, Saturnella. Uh, this is a festival of the unconquered sun. During this time, temples were decorated with greenery, uh, with candles, and gifts were given. And so the theory goes, the church took and redeemed these pagan holidays with the worship and birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, again, what they're saying is this, Jesus indeed is born. That's not in question. Jesus was born. The question is, when was he born? What date was he born? And so, again, some are theorizing the reason why it was December 25th was to overshadow the pagan holidays. But I want to put a little bit of a kinker into this theory. The borrowing of pagan celebrations uh, was not common in the early church. So, again, was it because of this? I don't know. But this theory troubled so many early Christians that by the 1600s, the Puritans banned Christmas. Did you know that? That the Puritans were like, eh, I don't know if we like this. And so in England, they banned the observance of Christmas. In fact, in the early Americas, many of the Puritans treated December 25th just as another work day. So the problem again with the theory that Christmas Day is a replacement to the pagan holiday is no early church evidence uh, in the first few hundred years of the church mentioned the pagan holidays. They didn't mention it. It wasn't until the 12th century that someone began to theorize that. 
In fact, early church leader Ambrose, he described Christ as the true son who outshone the fallen gods of the old order. Early church leaders saw the coincidence of the birth of Christ during the pagan holidays as a providential sign and as a natural proof that God has selected Jesus over any other false god. And that's where I land as well. Uh, I, I, again, the exact date, we, we don't have to die in a hill on that. Uh, we can go to heaven, and Jesus is like, no, this is the exact date that I came. But I, I tend to believe, uh, just as the early church believed, that Jesus indeed was born in and around December 25th. And in his providential way, he showed to the rest of the world that was worshiping the Son and all other sorts of things, that he is indeed the Son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world that nothing else can take away. So we don't know the exact timing of the birth. I think December 25th makes a lot of sense. But what we do know, and we can say hallelujah to this morning, is the Son has been born. Jesus Christ has come to be amongst us, born in a manger to take away the sins of the world. Church, that's a hallelujah, right? So Jesus is without question born among us, and that's why we celebrate at Christmas. Now, what about St. Nicholas? Hmm, where did he come from, St. Nicholas? Well, did you know, and many of you may already know this, he was a real person, St. Nick. And I'm going to quote him St. Nick because I can't see this morning. There may be kids in here, and I know we have different convictions of uh, old Chris Kringle, but let me tell you something. St. Nick was a real person. He was orphaned as a child, and he was raised by his uncle, and he became a church leader. Uh, and his, he inherited a lot of money through the death of his parents. And so when he became a church leader, whenever he saw a family in need or kids in need, he provided for them. When Roman Emperor uh, Diocletian took control of the Roman Empire in 284, he began to persecute Christians, including St. Nicholas. So much so that it was said that many, there were so many Christians in prison for their faith that the prisons had no room for actual criminals. St. Nicholas was remembered... His name translated in Dutch, in Dutch to Sinterklaas. When you translate that to English, you get Santa Claus. So you can see that, again, where did this individual come from? Uh, he was a worshiper of the Almighty God. In fact, I remember one time I saw uh, a, a, a nativity, and it was just, you know, you know these yards that just go crazy? They buy all the, like, the plastic pieces, and you, you can't even really see any yard. There's just so many plastic pieces. And I remember seeing uh, one instance where there was a nativity, and behind the nativity was uh, old Chris Kringle. And I was like, oh, man, that's kind of messed up. But then after like, looking at the history of St. Nick, St. Nick would be worshiping. He would be on his knees, worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I guess that's not that far off. So Christmas has a long history uh, of traditions developing around the central truth that's unshakable, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas was banned. It was banned by the Roman Empire and then later on by the Puritans. But by the 4th century, something changed. By the 4th century, Christmas would no longer be criminal as the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. So by the 4th century, uh, Emperor Christ, uh, Constantine builds the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and declares Christ's birthday an official Roman holiday. By the 6th century, the church sets apart four Sundays preceding Christmas for devotional preparation called Advent. By the 8th century, Boniface, English missionary to the Germans, replaces sacrifices to Odin's oak with a fir tree adorned in tribute to the Christ child. 
Uh, what we see by the 11th century is the word Christmas is christened. Uh, Christmas means a celebration of Christ. By the 13th century, Fra Francis of Assisi ministers to the illiterate common people by introducing a live nativity. By the 17th century, the first mention of a Christmas tree in Germany, when Martin Luther brought a tree in from his yard, and he began to adorn it in candles. And he began to really say the Christmas tree is an example of everlasting life, something that does not die, green in winter. By the 19th century, modern Christmas begins to take shape. Clement Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas popularizes Santa Claus. Uh, Prince Albert introduces the Christmas tree to England. Christmas cards become a tradition. And Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol connects the spirit of warmth and good cheer with Christmas. And Victorian sentimentalism becomes uh, part of the Christmas celebration. Again, uh, these aren't bad. We just see the, the development of different traditions uh, again, Christmas Eve is even a tradition. Borrowing from the Jewish idea that the day actually begins at 6 p.m. the previous day, the church began to celebrate Christmas not just as a single day, but a two-parter. And then it became a whole sin. And then when the retail world got involved in the, 19, uh, in the 1900s, uh, Christmas began to start at Labor Day. <laughs> Gifts. And even though we saw that gifts were given in, in Rome during the pagan holiday, Gifts is not something that the pagans can have. Gifts can be redeemed. Why? Because human beings have been giving each other gifts since Adam and Eve. And I'm, I'm sure Eve got an amazing engagement ring. All right? It was all natural. All right? So, uh, but we've been given gifts since the beginning of humanity. And we see, and what we will see this morning in our reading, is that gifts were given in the manger. Gifts were given uh, to, to Jesus. And again, gifts remind us as we give gifts to each other that Christmas gives us the best and most important gift we can ever receive. And that is salvation from Jesus Christ himself. I think the Puritans had it wrong throwing out the celebration of Christmas. But I think what they had right was is that we need to make sure that through all the pomp and circumstance and celebration of Christmas... That we don't miss the reason. That we don't miss the miracle. That we don't miss the significance of the gift that is given to you and I through Jesus Christ. Christmas should be a big deal. It should be a major, major party. It shouldn't be a time of year where people are seeing us stressed. And oh yes, we can get stressed. It should be a time of year where our house looks gloomy. Man, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if anybody should be Clark Griswolding their house right now and putting lights all over their house in their yard, it should be Christians, right? Because this is a party of parties. The first party happened in a pasture when the angels showed up to the shepherds and, and a whole heavenly chorus began to sing glory to God in the highest. And I want you to know this right now. When people see Christians at Christmas, they should be seeing a heavenly party in our lives. They should be seeing a heavenly party in our, in our lives and how we treat each other and how we go about every day. And here is the main idea. People should see the reason for the season in your life. We know that Jesus is the reason for the season, but do they see the reason in you? Do they see the reason in you? We need to let know that Jesus is a big 
deal, but it needs to go beyond our words, beyond our bumper stickers. It needs to be seen in every aspect of our life. People should see the reason for the season in your life, that Jesus is real, that Jesus is our eternal hope, that Jesus is a big deal because he brings real life change to impossible situations, that we serve and worship a miracle working God who does the impossible when everybody else and anything else has written you off or written your situation off. Oh, we serve an amazing God, don't we, church? People should see a difference in your worship, in your conviction, in your generosity. So let's talk about those three things. Number one, Christmas commands worship. Christmas commands worship. People should see a difference in our life in how and what we worship. Every Christmas morning, uh, when we, were, we would open up gifts and we'd be done with gifts, and before we get to the, uh, uh, the stockings, um, my mom would bake a cake for Jesus, all right? Uh, I don't know if anybody has that uh, tradition. Just raise your hand. Do you have that tradition? Does anybody bake a cake? For- you do? Oh, awesome. Okay, so yeah, my mom would bake a cake for Jesus. And at first I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And, you know, and how could I not like that? Okay, I'm going to have cake for breakfast. It's amazing. All right? But it helped me realize when we paused and my mom would make this cake for Jesus. It wasn't an elaborate cake. It was a store. It was a, it was a mix from a box. But it helped us pause and remember All the toys, all the things that we get at Christmas, guess what? They're not going to be as important the next Christmas. Can you imagine if my parents rewrapped the same toys for seven or eight years in a row? That would be awful, right? And what that cake reminded me, that that, that pausing reminded me, is that we don't worship the stuff or or the circumstance of of the festival or the the party. We we celebrate and we focus on the master of ceremonies. We focus on the one, Jesus Christ. And so I'm grateful for my parents to have us pause because it's so important for us to pause this morning and realize through all the busyness, through all the, the uh, just the stress, maybe even the sorrow of missing that loved one that's not with you this Christmas, I want you to know there's something so unshakable. It's the reason why we go through this, what seems like sometimes a rat race, is that we worship the king. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go to the days just after the birth of Jesus, and let's see this worship and celebration unfold. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and we've come to worship him. So we see the first phrase here is now after Jesus was born. This passage took place likely a few months after the nativity scene. And many believe this happened in the month of February. So we see here that after a few months that Jesus was born, he was two months old, in the days of Herod. Let's pause there. I mentioned Herod a little bit last week. King Herod was a ruthless, cruel person. He believed that he was the king of Judea. He was the one that believed that he was the king of the Jews. And so when somebody prophesied and said, the king of the Jews has been born, uh, he was very angry. Uh, he, was, he was very insecure. He would kill anybody that, that got in his way. Uh, he killed every family member, including his wife, when he felt threatened. And so he was a brutal, brutal, murderous dictator. And when he found out uh, that a king of the Jews was going to be born near Bethlehem, 
in his heart, he was realizing, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop this. In fact, you'll read later on in this passage that he, he created an edict to, to kill every firstborn boy in and around Bethlehem so that he could stay king. But the real king was born. That's the fact. The fiction is that, is that Herod couldn't stop. Uh, Herod was king. The fact is the real king was born and the wise men arrived looking for the savior to worship him. Wise men. Some of your translations call them magi. The wise men. Uh, they came from the east, and mo- which is today modern day Iran. Uh, they were seen as religiously inclined, although I would not consider them biblical. They were a mixture, a hodgepodge of religions. And so they're a bit odd, but yet they struck gold on this day. Uh, we're told in the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament prophetic book, that there were wise men. In so much that when Daniel was exiled, uh, Daniel began to prophesy, began to interpret dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. It pleased Nebuchadnezzar so much that he placed Daniel in charge of the land and in charge of the province of Babylon and in charge of the wise men. And so the wise men saw Daniel and they highly regarded him. And so as the years and centuries went by, the wise men began to look at uh, scripture. They began to look at this coming Messiah when he was supposed to arrive. And so the many theologians believe the influence was passed down to guide this class of wise men. And as they read the prophecies, they began to seek out when the one true God would come to be among us. And the wise men were there also gifted in the sciences and astronomy. And so when they read the prophecies and saw the uh, astronomical signs that were prophesied in the Old Testament... They believed they knew when Jesus was going to come. So in faith, get this, in faith, they walked from Iran to Israel. That's 1,300 miles they walked because they believed so much so the prophecies, the Old Testament were going to be fulfilled in this moment. So the next time you complain that church is a little bit too early, the next time you complain that you don't have enough time to pray or read your Bible, just remember the wise men in faith, walked 1,300 miles to see the Savior. Matthew 2.10. And when they saw the star, they, the CSB says, were overwhelmed. But let me read you what it says in the ESV. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They walked 1,300 miles. Miles, I'm sure they, have you ever been on a road trip, right? Right, And you drive through the night, you didn't eat, you skipped a meal, and you arrive at the hotel. It's the worst. You, you feel the worst in life. You feel like just one little thing and you just get me set off. You're just so cranky and hangry. How do you think these wise men felt, right? Going through the night on their camels, not being able to find food, not being able to, to, to sleep well at night. And they arrive at the manger. And you know what? It, it, I bet they're tempted in the flesh. If they arrived at that manger, they'd be like, well, there he is. There, I've, I told you. you. You started doubting. I bet they were having little fights. Or, you know, do you really think we're going to find the Savior? But that's not what we see. We don't see indifference. We don't see hanger. We don't, we don't see them being just a little bit uh, with ruffled feathers. No, no, what we see is this. Not a golf clap. Not a ponder. We see them be un, 
done with the motion. They see the Savior of what they have been anticipating for hundreds of years. They have been anticipating for every one of those 1,300 miles. They saw the Savior and they were overwhelmed. They saw the Savior and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they fell on their knees and they worshiped. Man, we can learn a lot from the wise men that fall on our knees. We can learn a lot from the wise men to realize that when we come and we experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we worship and praise together as, as a church, when we have the opportunity to share Jesus in our life, may it never be a golf clap. May it never be something where we're complacent or we just do it when it's convenient. Man, may we be overwhelmed exceedingly with great joy. Man, God should overwhelm our senses. He should overwhelm our mind. He should overwhelm us because he is giving us something that is so mind-blowing, that's so impossible, the forgiveness of our sins. The wise man had reason to rejoice. His name is Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, hope of our future, grace for our present. He's not a shoulder shrug. Oh, I guess Jesus is born it is awe-inspiring, church. Let us remember that. Let's remember that when we give praise to Jesus, when we sing to him, may we give him the highest praise of our life. When we are in doubt, we don't see how we can go forward, whether it's in our relationship, our jobs, our situations, whatever they are, I want you to know you have a miracle-working God that knows exactly what's going on in your life and is walking before you. He is the hope of our eternity. Oh, that people would see the reality of the why of Christmas. Would people see the reality of our life? May we pause this morning and say, God, will you overwhelm us this morning? The Christmas season is an invite to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, the maker of the heavens and the earth, who came to rescue you from your sins. What is worship, though? Man, it's a word we throw around a lot, Right? What is worship? Okay, let's worship Jesus. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts, and might I add on there, our entire lives. We often think of worship as just singing, or we think of worship as coming together in this room. That, that is worship, but worship is our whole life. Now, this word worship that we see here in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men came and worshipped him, it comes from a, a word called prosuke in the Greek. It, it comes from a word that literally means to prostrate oneself. It means fall to their knees and put their face to the ground in honor and homage to the king. It's an action word that's related to what you believe. You're overwhelmed with emotion when you worship and praise Jesus because you realize he is king and you realize who he is. God has taken on flesh, 100% God, 100% human, completely perfect to take our sin debt that separates us from God. Worship is reflected more than just our singing. It's our everything. It's how you pray. It's how you praise. It's how you make yourself available for the things of God. It's how you treat others. It's the priorities in your life. It's how you give. It's how you share your faith. It's how you read the Bible. It's, how you, it's everything. Worship is a declaration of the worth of something. And listen, it's not today that we need to become worshipers. Oh, we are all worshipers. We are worshiping something or someone. The question is, are you worshiping the right thing? John Calvin famously said that our hearts are natural idol factories. What he means by that is our hearts will naturally worship something and that naturally something isn't God. 
It's often ourselves. Oh man, we are living in a society today where we don't believe that the, the universe, or at least our solar system, revolves around uh, the sun. Uh, we're not living in a theological reality in society where we believe that our lives should revolve around the sun, Lord Jesus Christ. No, rather, we're living in a culture that naturally says the world revolves around you or revolves around me. It's all about you. It's not. It's about the king. It's about Jesus. But our hearts are natural idol factories. Worship is the declaration of the worth of something. And the question I have for myself and for all of us, is the worth of Jesus more worthwhile than anything else in our life? The answer is no. Then whatever you, is the most valuable thing in your life, that is what you're worshiping. You are a worshiper. Everyone is worshiping something or someone. So it's important that true worship has the right object of faith. Only God alone should be the object of our highest praise and worship. Uh, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory and the exact impression of his nature, sustaining all things by the power of his word. So what or who is competing for your worship this morning? What or who is competing for your worship this morning. Maybe it's the fear of the future. Maybe you're, you're worshiping your future so much because you're so fearful of it. Maybe it's the regret of the past. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe it's climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a relationship. What is it? And know this. Sometimes... We feel like we're right with God, but what we're doing is, is we're taking our idolatry and we're spiritualizing it. Uh, sometimes we, we lift up other people, we lift up other things so much so uh, that, that we are drifting from the things of God. Your environment affects you. Did you know that? People say, oh, peer pressure doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. It affects me. It affects you. Who you hang around with is who you will become. And you're led to worship is often by what you begin to worship that's not God. And for some of you today, I just wanna say this, this is a bonus. For some of you today, it's the people that you hang out with, uh, it's, it, you begin to fill your life not with worship, but with drama, right? Uh, it's, it's the drama of the holidays. Oh man, maybe some of you are looking forward to, not looking forward to, should I say, uh, the Christmas dinner because like, oh man, it's just gonna be drama, right? Y'all put the smile around the table when that family member leaves, you be like, can you believe them? Yeah, let me tell you what's really going on in their life, right? Drama, we are drawn to drama, not to worship, right? Oh, and I would say that unfortunately for many Christians, uh, for, for many people, even in the church world, we're addicted to the drama hall, right? We're addicted, we are dramaholics, Amos warned Israel when they had gone astray and they began reflecting the practices of culture. He said in Amos 5.23, he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. What he's saying is this. We can easily look the part of a follower of Christ, but our life and our hearts are anything but. What is competing for your worship today? Whatever it is that you're lifting above God, lower that thing and make God number one. The world needs to see the hope exhibited through a whole life worship stuck on the right object and his name is Jesus Christ. And when you worship Jesus, true worship will result in real joy. When we focus our attention on the reason for the season, just as the wise men did, we become overwhelmed with joy 
that overcomes the darkness of this world, that overcomes the dark thoughts that we might have, that overcomes our regrets and our insecurities. When we worship Jesus, it is a declaration of trust that all the things we have, listen, don't cut it. It's a declaration of trust that, God, you got this even when I don't see it. It's a declaration of trust that, God, you are above and worth more than anything I could ever acquire. Worship produces eternal joy. And it's a joy that's a two-way street. Joy that's a two-way street. We see in Psalm 1611, let me read this to you. It says this, the psalmist says this. You reveal the path of life to me in your presence is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. When you worship the king, uh, when, when you are present with him in worship, you are aware of his presence, that is. Uh, you realize how sweet it is to be a worshiper of God. You realize that, that how good God is and what he's provided for you. Listen, God is always present. The question is, are you aware of his presence? And it's so sweet when we can come together as a church and together we can be aware of his presence. When you're aware of his presence, everything else begins to fade away. But sometimes we aren't allowing ourselves to be aware of the presence of God and the joy of God because we're just inundating our lives with negativity. I mean, some of us, we need to turn off that 24-hour news station. Some of us, we, we need to stop doom-scrolling social media. Some of us, we need to stop listening to the lies that are bouncing in our head some of us need to get out of the circles of godless chatter we find ourselves in. And we need to seek the sweetness of his presence. And your presence is abundant joy. We receive joy when we are worshipers of the king. But you know it's a two-way street. You know who receives joy when we find our joy in God? God receives joy. He takes joy in seeing us take joy in him. Zephaniah 3.17, let me read this to you. The Lord, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love, and he will delight in you with singing. With singing. God becomes so joyful when we find our joy in him, he begins to sing over us. I don't know if you've had a child, uh, if you've had a child or if you've babysat or whatever, and the, and, and the little baby just can't, can't get to sleep or it's just, you know, it's being fussy. Sometimes you resort to singing, I've done that. It made it worse. I'm just kidding. But anyway, and you begin to just sing over the child, and it usually calms them. God's singing over you this morning. Some of you absolutely love the Christmas carols of, of Christmas. And I've asked, why do you like that? It's just It brings back such great memories. It's, it's calming. But for many of us, the circumstances of life, the negativity of life, the things that are inundating us, we cannot hear the song that God is singing over you. He's serenading you with his carols of joy. Just pause. Take in the sweetness of his presence. Be aware of his presence. He is singing over you. Worship brings joy. Do they see the joy in you? Do they see a difference? People should see the reason for the season in your life. God commands worship. Secondly, God commands conviction. God commands conviction. You will not worship unless you are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's come to take away the sins of the world. If you're convicted, uh, your conviction will lead you, no matter how easy or how hard it is, to worship God. Let's go back to St. Nick for a second. Jolly old 
Saint Nick. He was arrested for his faith. The emperor demanded that he would deny that Jesus was God. And old Saint Nick, true story, said, I will not deny that. I will not deny that. And subsequently, he was thrown in prison, and he was physically tortured. And yet, he did not relent. When the emperor's reign ended, Saint Nick was released from the battle that he had in prison. But the battle wasn't over. What he found was this. Even though the persecution from the government kind of subsided, he realized the battle went to the church. When he was gone, an influential leader named Arius wormed his way into the church and he was teaching people that Jesus wasn't God. So at first it was the government, but the government thing trickled down into the people. We see this today too, by the way, uh, is that if we are not Bible Christians, the culture will affect you. It might not affect you immediately, but, but it begins to poison your heart slowly to where you begin to reflect the values and the theology of culture if you are not guided by the conviction of the Bible. It will happen. Well, this is what happened. And Arius began to reflect the emperor's decree in the church saying that Jesus was not God and he was beginning to find followers. Arius today, he would, he would have that podcast. And people are like, did you hear that last podcast? I mean, I know what he's saying isn't true, but he just, he just so articulated the way that he articulates things. It, it makes you think a little bit. This is what people would say. And people were drawn to his presentation. He had a cool factor. He had name recognition and culture. And his ideas were catching on even so much so, he even wrote a catchy worship song so that people were just moved by their emotions uh, into this falsehood. At a church council, he was beginning to address, he had to defend himself. Uh, many in the church were opposing him, thankfully, and he was defending himself and he was trying to convince the entire church that Jesus was just a human being. Old Saint Nick was in this meeting and old Saint Nick had had enough and so you know what he did? He didn't argue with Arius. He went up to Arius, and as Arius was talking, punched him right in the mouth and knocked him out. Old Saint Nick was a warrior. Unfortunately, Old Saint Nick got in trouble. Uh, he, the church says that's not Christ-like. You shouldn't punch out people uh, that have opposing viewpoints. He thought like it was uh, serious enough that he needed to go to war with his fists, but he ended up losing his bishop title, but he didn't stop sharing Jesus the rest of his life. That's the story of St. Nick. St. Nick was a man of conviction. I don't endorse uh, punching people. We shouldn't be punching people in the parking lot or when people are having a disagreement, no matter what it is, right? Uh, we don't use our fists. Uh, we, we lift our holy hands and we pray, all right? Um, so St. Nick was wrong in that, but man, he was full of conviction in opposing somebody. Listen, he knocked him out that day in God's providential care. Guess what? That argument was knocked out that day and it was deemed heresy thereafter, he had conviction. He had conviction. And this is what the world needs to see. They need to see not just partying and, and celebrating the birth of Jesus. They need to see that we really believe it. They need to see that we believe it in our lives. They need to see that we believe that we really be, that God is a miracle working God. That, that God can change the situations. That God, through his truth and through his spirit, can take darkness and turn it into light. It's like the, the words of a holy night, a thrill of hope, the weary, world the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. King Herod had conviction. He had conviction that Jesus should be stopped. The wise men had conviction 
that they would travel so far to find the king and worship the king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief of priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then Herod, verse 7, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When they have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We know from later on, Herod did not want to worship him. He's lying. He wants to kill him. Verse uh, 12. And the wise men, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. So God spoke to them through a dream, saying, do not lead Herod back. Go the other way. That's usually where the story ends with the wise men. But I want us to stop here for a second. The wise men had to know if they did not obey Herod, Herod would have a bounty on their head. They knew that if they didn't obey Herod, their lives could end. They could die for not obeying the king. And yet, their conviction was stronger than the convenience they could have in just obeying the king. The false king, Herod. They wanted to obey the king of kings. You see, here's the deal. I believe the reason why the Western church has been in such a weak state is we want to be Christians by convenience. We want to be Christians out of an abundance of complacency. And God is calling us this morning. He's calling every single one of us to be Christians, to be followers of Christ by conviction. Conviction will allow you uh, to win victories even when you're at your weakest point. Why? Because the Spirit of God will give you that power to do what is right even when you want to do what is wrong. You know, many of you know that I have a temptation with cookies. And this is a real problematic time of year. I've had too many cookies. I probably need to confess my sins. And whenever you have an open container of cookies, uh, I'll eat them all. Let's just say there's not a lot of cookies in our house right now because I ate them. Temptation. We will always succumb to temptation if we are not people of conviction. We are tempted to buy everything off Amazon. Uh, we, are, we, are, we, we are maybe even tempted because of stress to give into every day weaknesses in our life it is so easy to hit the easy button and say you know what tomorrow god tomorrow god tomorrow god how many of the weaknesses in our life we're still weak in because we just tell god every day tomorrow how many of you tomorrow has yet to come and what god is telling us this morning is he wants us to be people of conviction that it's today that we need to be obedient today we need to be people that don't live by convenience uh, that don't live by just complacency, but that we do the hard work of being someone that says, God, I trust you, that I want to be obedient in you. This goes on how you spend your money. This goes on what you stream on your TV. This goes on what the words that come out of your mouth and how you pray and what you worry about and what you get angry about. Uh, the conviction is, God, I want you to lead the way in every area of my life. And real worship comes from a heart of conviction, the conviction that life is a storehouse of lived out obedience. Obedience is the love language of the Lord. It's the love language of the Lord. We must be obedient even when we don't want to. Conviction. Conviction comes from two things. Number one, it comes from knowledge. Conviction comes from knowledge. The wise men, they read through and studied the scripture through and through, and they had the conviction that the Savior was going to be born. So much so, they went and did the walk. As Christians, if we are not in the word of God... We, we will not have conviction. 
We will only obey Jesus when it's easy. You want to know, you want to know when it's easy to obey Jesus? When you're in church, <laughs> right? When you're in city group, right? When you're with your Christian friends. How about when you're alone? How about when nobody else is looking? Uh, how about in the dead of the night? That is when conviction needs to be the strongest. And as Christians, if we're not in the word of God, we will become late adapters to cultural disobedience. If you're not in the word, cultural influencer views on sexuality, on drugs, on theology, on worship, on money, on all of it. Oh, I won't be affected. You will, I will. We need to be people of the word, convinced of what God's will is for our life. Conviction comes from knowledge. Secondly, conviction is empowered by the spirit. Make no mistake, you will not have the power to be obedient if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, period. You, cannot, you can do things out of habit. You can do things that are, you know, oh, I've had a good two weeks. But listen, you want to know why New Year's resolutions have fallen on hard times? Because in our own strength, we can only go so far. God wants victory in your life. And the way to have victory is to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead has come to live in you. You receive the Holy Spirit when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. But you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to, how do you do this? You need to wake up every morning. You need to say, good morning, Holy Spirit. I need to be filled and empowered and led by you. I am weak in these areas of my life. I know if I go on my own strength, I'm going to say these things. I know that if I go on my own strength, I'm going to do these things. And your Holy Spirit, I need to do what I know what you want me to do. Ask him daily. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Some of us have not been living in the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you need to be filled today. This Christmas, people need to see a church that's filled with the Spirit, you need to be filled with biblical living and conviction. Listen, none of us are perfect. Not one of us. We all have our, our hiccups. We all have our problems. And that's why the grace of Jesus is so beautiful. He receives us to redeem us. But he doesn't keep you where you're at. He wants to transform you. Christmas commands worship. It commands conviction. And finally, it commands generosity. Generosity. People should not see a miserly person. They should be somebody who is willing to be generous in all areas, our times, our talents, our treasures. Remember when we went all crazy at the grocery store in 2020? Do you remember the first few days of the pandemic? And we went, like, Woodman's was like a war zone, all right? They ran out of food, right? Every, literally, they had to close the doors at 8 o'clock because they ran out of food. People were going nuts, like, ah, I better buy all the food because what if they run out of food? We can't get food anymore. I'm like, yeah, that's bad, right? And y'all, y'all bought toilet paper and all that stuff, right? We did too. But anyway, you just, we went nuts because we thought we weren't going to have enough. And all the experts were like, stop, there's enough food. And there was so much unused food because all the food that we hoarded, literally people were dumping milk in the ditches. But in the moment, we didn't think there was enough. This mindset can creep into how we use our time, our talent, and our treasures. And people can sniff it from a mile away. And the wise men, they didn't come just to see Jesus, to worship Jesus. They came to give back what was his already. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men were going to bring gifts to this most important, long-awaited moment. They gave gold, the most precious metal of the day. They gave frankincense, which was a costly incense that was only used for the most important occasions, and myrrh, which is used for burial. They knew that Jesus was going to come to live, to die. We're to be known for our generosity, not giving God our leftovers, but giving God our first and our best of our everything, of saying, God, we know it is a privilege to be used by you to live not for our own selves or this life, because life, it's here 80 plus years and then it's gone, but eternity's forever. People need to see the generosity of the love of God in your life. So Christmas, fact or fiction, let's take a little test. Fact or fiction? Fact or fiction, you're living for the right object of worship. Fact or fiction, you're living by biblical conviction no matter the cost. Fact or fiction, you live a life of outrageous generosity. The Bible says be a cheerful giver. That word cheerful comes from the Greek word hilarion where we get hilarious. People should see, it's like, that doesn't even make sense. Fact or fiction. Listen, this isn't just for a season. This is a lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle that can't begin until you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Have you made Jesus Christ your personal Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in Him alone? This isn't something a church can do for you. This isn't something I can do for you. This isn't something that you're born into or that you work your way to where, okay, I did all these things, now I'm good, God. This is something that only God can do for you through Jesus Christ. Have you asked Jesus Christ to personally save you from your sins? If you're unsure or you know you haven't, then you need to place your faith and trust in him alone. The Bible says that for, for by grace, that means undeserved favor, you've been saved. It's a faith. Not of work so that no one can boast. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. A couple verses later, it says, all those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you asked Jesus to personally save you? Have you, asked, have you placed your faith and trust in him alone? It's not about your works. It's not about your church. It's not about the family you're born into. It's about have you personally asked Jesus to be your savior? Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter your present. It matters, are you receiving him? I'm gonna give you an opportunity do that right now, and then we'll see what else the Lord wants to do this morning. So, Father, I just pray for anybody in this room that has never placed their faith and trust in you, that they would do that right now. They'd say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've done wrong in my life, and I need you to forgive me. I place my full faith and trust in you alone, that you died on the cross to save me from my sins, that you rose from the dead. I want to follow you now. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today, you're placing your faith and trust in Jesus. You want to you place your full faith in him. If that's you today, on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand up high. All heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. So on the count of three, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count. Just raise their hand up high. You're just indicating that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus this morning. So no one looking around. One, two, three. Raise those hands up high. Say, yeah, that's me. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus. Thank you. Anybody else? Just raise a hand up high and say, yep, that's me. I want to pray for you this week. Awesome. Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are saying yes to you this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that, uh, that they would know that they are forgiven. 
their sins past, present, and future. Lord, I pray today that Christmas would be a fact in our lives, that you would be the object of our faith. It'd be a fact uh, that, God, that, that our, our whole lives would be a life of worship. And it'd be a fact that people would see outrageous generosity flowing from us, God. Lord, I pray that this be a lifestyle, not just a season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.